I'll pray for you. Those are words of encouragement when somebody offers them to you, especially if you have a need in your life. They just, we take it as a sign of love when somebody we know says those words to us. When a friend or a relative or a brother or sister in Christ says, I'll pray for you, we're always thankful for their thoughtfulness toward us. I'll pray for you. What if Jesus were to say those words to you? They would encourage my heart. My heart would just really leap for joy knowing that my Savior is praying for me. It sounds really awesome. It would show me that his love and his concern for me. And, of course, knowing who he is and what he can do would add my, to my appreciation for his offer to pray for me. Thankfully, the idea of Jesus praying for us is not just something we can imagine, but it's something that happens. And it's happening all the time. The Bible tells us that Jesus prays for us at all times. Since he's risen from the dead and he's ascended back into heaven, in fact, he intercedes on our behalf. Uh, he, when we express in prayer our needs, our hopes, our fears, Jesus takes those things to the Father on our behalf. Uh, Hebrews 7:25 tells us that Jesus lives to intercede for us. So what does Jesus say when he prays for us? Well, the word of God that was just read this morning gives us one indication of what he prays for. And we can listen in to one of those prayers that he gave in Scripture for us. Now, we need to think about when Jesus was here on earth, there uh, was a certain argument that tended to rise amongst his followers, especially his 12 disciples, over who was the greatest. There was a movie that came out a few years ago with Will Smith in it, and the movie was Ali. Did anybody see that movie, Ali? Yeah, it was about a great heavyweight boxer named Muhammad Ali. Uh, and Muhammad Ali was really well-known, not only for being a, a heavyweight champion, but he was pretty full of himself, let's just put it that way. And he would go around and he would say, I'm the greatest. That was what he would do all the time. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. And so not only do, do ancient disciples and heavyweight boxers struggle with this own idea and their focus on greatness, we tend to struggle with it sometimes ourselves. You know, the bug of self-interest infects families and small groups and congregations and even denominations today. Whenever we insist on our own way, take credit for a group's accomplishment or walk away hurt because we weren't consulted, we're struggling with this form of self-centeredness and self-glorification. By contrast, I want us to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. This is what he writes. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you know what God's favorite word is? God's favorite word is one. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the foundation of what we believe as Christians. There's one God and only one God, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, holy, and ever-present. There is none like him. God is set apart. But does he stand alone? Does he live as one being in isolation? You know, before Jesus ascended back into heaven, he gave his disciples a statement that we call the Great Commission. 
He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God does not, God does not live in isolation because God exists as three in one, and He is perfect in unity. That's something that's called the Trinity, a word that doesn't appear in Scriptures, but is used because, as theologian Donald Bloch says, the Trinity is the immediate implication of the fact, form, and content of biblical revelation. Much of what I've shared with you this morning come, comes from an article, a message that I heard from John Ortberg, who's a pastor at Menlo Park Church in the Bay Area of California. He's also a prolific Christian writer, written some really great books. But Ortberg, he writes this about the Trinity. He says, think about the life within the Trinity. How do Father, Son, and Spirit relate to each other? Are there a lot of arguments about who is the most omniscient, the most omnipresent, the most powerful, the, most, the oldest? Do we hear those kind of arguments? No. We don't see that kind of behavior uh, manifested in God's relationship to himself. So what's life like in the Trinity? I want us to think about that a little bit this morning. Think about the Spirit. Ortberg cites an essay written by Dale Bruner in which he begins with the person of the Holy Spirit. And he says, One of the most surprising discoveries in my own study of the doctrine and experience of the Spirit in the New Testament is what I can only call the shyness of of the Spirit. What I mean here is not a shyness of timidity, but the shyness of deference, the shyness of a concentrated attention on another. It's not the shyness which we often experience that is self-centeredness, but the shyness of other-centeredness. Think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. His goal isn't to draw attention to himself, but rather to point to the Son. John tells us in his Gospels that the Spirit, that the Spirit comes in the name of the Son. And bears witness to the Son and glorifies the Son. The Spirit is all about bringing attention to God's Son. Bruner says the ministry of the Spirit could be pictured by drawing a stick figure on a whiteboard. Amazing. We have a whiteboard right here. And so what I'm going to do is uh, show my artistic ability and draw really something very delicate and intricate as such as a stick figure that represents Jesus. So, can you tell by my drawing that that's Jesus? Looks like him, doesn't it? So, Bruner goes on and he says, really, here's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, okay? He says, it's like the Spirit is standing behind the whiteboard and pointing with a finger or with a marker to say, look, look at Jesus, look at him, listen to him, follow him, worship him, be devoted to him, serve him, love him, be preoccupied with him. That that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's to defer to and shine light on Jesus, on Jesus, God's Son. That's the shyness of the Spirit. So when we look at the Son, oddly enough, we don't find Him parading around like Muhammad Ali saying, I'm the greatest! In fact, it's quite different than that in the New Testament, isn't it? We see Jesus often saying, it's not about how great I am. In fact, one of the verses says, if I, Jesus says, if I glorify myself... My glory means nothing. In Mark 10:45, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Jesus is about glorifying and honoring his Father. The Son submitted to the Spirit. The first three Gospels tell us it was the Spirit who sent Jesus out into the world. And he sent him into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And when praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Right before he was going to be crucified, he told the Father, Not my will be done, but your will be done. 
Jesus, too, has the same kind of shyness as the Spirit. And then there's the Father. We hear His voice on two different occasions in the Gospels. Uh, Once at Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan and again at the Transfiguration. Both times His words are a variation of the same message. This is my priceless Son. I am deeply pleased with Him. Listen to Him. Listen to my Son. It's worth noting that Bruner says that the voice of God, the Father, doesn't say, listen to me too. After listening to my son, don't forget that I'm here too. Don't be taken up just with my son because God the Father is shy too. The whole blessed Trinity is shy. Each member of the Trinity points faithfully and selflessly to the others in a gracious circle of God's own being. Let me draw this for you since I'm so good as an artist. I want you to see this. I really feel embarrassed that we have missionaries that are artists, that are missionaries to the art community right now. But, you know, God planned this, not me. So. so if I'm willing to show you the different persons of the Trinity, we have Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. And so as we're talking about here, there's a shyness, there's a deference. They're, literally, they point to the other in the Trinity. And there's a unity of spirit and oneness. And, and so the Son, He is deferring to the will of the Father. And the Spirit is, is pointing again to the Son. And the Spirit is sent by the Father. There's this really amazing uh, relationship that's going on here in God's own identity. So Ortberg states that God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit in a community of greater humility, servanthood, and mutual submission and delight than you and I can ever imagine. Three, yet one. Oneness is God's signature. God exists in community throughout all of eternity. Think about that. God exists in community throughout all eternity. God is set apart, but He doesn't stand alone. He models perfect community. We learn about uh, authentic biblical community by the way that God relates to Himself. It's not just in relationship to each other that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit displays an astounding humility. Uh, It's in relation to us as well. And God offers us a stunning invitation. If we go back to John chapter 17, it records again this prayer of Jesus given on the night that He's going to be apprehended by an angry mob. And in preparation for certain death, this is what He prays. This is His last lengthy prayer of any kind. And you kind of think, this is going to be important, what Jesus is going to pray in his last prayer before he's crucified. This is what he says. My prayer is not for them alone. He'd been praying for his disciples, either the 12 and or the 500 or so disciples that he had as followers. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus is literally praying for every Christian who's come in the last 20 centuries since his death and resurrection. He's not only praying for people who've come, he's praying for you and me in this very prayer. And he's praying for people who are going to come after us who are going to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So as we know, we see here in the Trinity, uh, each member points to the others in a gracious circle. 
And now Jesus is praying, may they be one as we are one. May they be one in us. And so it's absolutely shocking, but altogether true, that God invites us into the fellowship of the Trinity. Look at this. We were on the outside, but now God invites us into the very center of this community, this fellowship, this unity, this oneness that has existed for all of eternity. The New Bible Dictionary says this. He says, in his essential life, God is a fellowship. This is perhaps the supreme revelation of God given in the Scriptures. It is that God's life is eternally within himself, a fellowship of three equal and distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that in his relationship to his moral creation, God was extending to them the fellowship that was essentially his own. Now, this fellowship isn't free. It's not, it's not easy. We're sinful creatures, and God is perfect. He's the perfect creator. What price did God pay so that we might join him in this community? I want us to look at this as we look at the Trinity. Let's think about what price the Son paid. The Son left heaven and came down to earth. And it was no small thing to go from that oneness that he had known for all of eternity uh, to the place of completely identifying with humans and their brokenness and their aloneness. He even endured death on the cross. The place from which he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son paid a pretty significant price to invite us into community with him. The father, the father also paid a price. The father offered his only son with whom he was perfectly one. He watched as his son was rejected, beaten, nailed to a cross to die, and he willingly experienced the the broken heart of a father. The father paid a price. And the Spirit, the Spirit paid a price too. The Spirit would be poured out onto the earth, and to a large extent, He would be ignored or denied. On earth, He would be quenched and even grieved. Never before had the Spirit been grieved. All this was sacrificed so that you and I could be drawn into the center of this remarkable community, this remarkable fellowship, this remarkable oneness with God, so that you and I don't have to stand alone any longer. Our invitation to community with God came at a tremendous price. So to allow disunity in the church is to be at odds with the purpose of God in human history. It's to ignore or to cheapen God's sacrifice on our behalf. We might be tempted to think that unity among Christ's disciples and think, well, it's just one thing among a number of virtues that God would like to see established in his followers, in his disciples. And, And unity can get lost in a long list of those virtues, and we catalog with all the others. Then my question for us is, why is unity so important, so such a priority that Jesus would make it the thing, the focal point of his last prayer before he was crucified? It seems to me that's pretty important to God if Jesus is praying about this for his followers and for his, the body of Christ that would remain after he would leave. So, you know, if, if unity is so important, what difference does it make? I want to suggest a few reasons why unity matters. It teaches us that reality does not lie in isolated self, but rather in community. Now, that's a fairly full statement. Let me unpack that a little bit for us. Since God is the ultimate reality, and because we're made in his image, his existence will show us the highest good that we can be transformed into or toward. However, we hold individual in such a high regard that that we may be blind to this, 
to the way that God has designed his creation to be lived out. We don't see community as essential to life. Even in the church, sometimes we think we can go it alone or disrupt unity without a second thought. It's a matter of fact that oftentimes churches sacrifice oneness over almost every doctrine. We tend to divide and split and wound and and willingly live at odds with each other. And this must certainly grieve God to the core of his being, who in his very essence lives as oneness with himself and who paid a tremendous price for us to be one with him. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I, as attached, am I as attached to my church family as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are connected and attached to each other? If not, then ask God, how would he have you become a person who refuses to stand alone, who says, I can't stand alone any longer. I have to connect and invest in this Christian community. It's a question we all have to be asked. So be it in a life group or a Sunday morning class or a men's or a women's study group or a a serving on a ministry team or being involved in an encouragement or accountability or a support group. You know, none of us should stand alone. In fact, God is inviting us into this incredible fellowship and unity with him and with each other. So try out a group. Give a staff member a call. Ask for a recommendation on a group or, you know, on your connections card. Write down that you want to help serve in a ministry. And somebody will call you and help you find a place to serve. So unity matters. Secondly, it matters because the purpose of oneness is to accelerate mission. Look at the last part of verse 21 and 17. It says, Jesus says, so that the world may believe. Notice we're not just to enjoy the unity and the oneness for our own sake. It's sure it's fun to be on the same page with everybody else and get along. But oneness should always accelerate evangelism. The most winsome witnessing is the unity within the church. God's redemptive plan for the world is that the world may believe, and the way this is accomplished today is through the unified oneness of the body of Christ. Anyone who's seeking truth is attracted to the oneness and the harmony that should be evident in churches today. And when that unity is absent, they can smell it and they'll be turned off by it. Friends, when we're united, man, the world will stand up and take notice of God because they'll see him glorified in us. Jesus says in Matthew 5:16, he said in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Oneness gives credence to our claims, to the message, to the gospel. Specifically according to John 17 verse 23, the world will know two things when they see oneness in the body of Christ. They're first they're going to know what God's mission is, that he sent his son to be the savior of the world. The world will not believe the father sent the son until we demonstrate spiritual oneness. The second thing they're going to see is God's message, that God loves people. God loves people. People will be attracted to the love of God when they see it manifested in our lives and in the church. And lastly, I want us to think that unity matters because it teaches us that relationships and community are to be marked by selflessness and humble love. And this is where it gets really tough. We start talking about these kind of things. So how should we treat each other in community? Well, we need to look to God to see how he relates to himself. What's our basis for relationships? Look to God. God teaches us how to treat each other and how he relates to himself. He is the foundation for community and unity and oneness. 
Ask ourselves, do I treat every member of my church family with the same gracious humility the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit demonstrate to each other in the Trinity, in relating to each other? If so, fantastic. You're in the center of God's will for you and for community. And He's going to do great things through you. If not, ask God to change your heart. Ask Him to help you to get in step with His will for community. And as a reminder of the kind of relationships that God is calling us to have, I'm going to ask us to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 together out loud. It's kind of a reminder that we do desire to be a high-impact, transformative community by going deeper in Christ and further in mission. And so often we emphasize the going deeper in Christ and the further in mission, but we also have as a part of our mission statement, we desire to be a high-impact, transformative community. And that's a huge challenge. And so what I'd like you to do is I want you to read these verses together. So let's stand up. They're going to be on the screen behind me. And I'm going to invite you to read with me these verses. So let's read together. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Thank you. You may be seated. Good job. You're awake. Blood is moving. This is a good thing. That's how God desires His church to be and to look like. And remember, the next words in these verses talk about, you know, one God, one faith, one baptism. So these relationships are foundational to oneness. So becoming a high-impact, transformative community won't be easy. In fact, it's going to be very difficult, especially in the context and the world that we live in, a world that seemingly is becoming more and more divided rather than unified. The very, motion, the very notion of community stands at odds with Satan's plan, his goal of dividing and conquering the church from within. He wouldn't even like the thought of us thinking that community is going to make us scared or uneasy. Because, you know, community is kind of hard. So I want us to think about what are just three, some three very practical steps that we can take as we try to live into this calling that God has called us and invited us into to live in community in unity with him. So one is, I would say, focus on relationships. It's all about relationships. You know, and relationships are hard sometimes. It's easy to be in a relationship with people that we look like and agree with and get along easily with. But that's not really what God's calling us to. He's calling us to be in relationship with each other, every believer, together in the body of Christ. And we look a lot differently. We sometimes think differently. We act differently. It's hard. So how do we do that? Well, it means even being in relationship with people that are different than you, especially people that are different with you. Be incarnational. What do I mean by incarnational? It means, you know, with God in the Trinity in that relationship saw our need. And what did, what did God do? Sent his son, Jesus, to take on our flesh, to walk in our footsteps, to walk with us. That's what it means to be incarnational. Walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. As the best of our ability, take on the flesh of somebody who it's hard to be around or even to understand what they're thinking. But that's what we're called to do and to be. So one, invest in relationships. Two, listen. Listen to one another. Well, there can be a lot of talking sometimes, but not a lot of good listening that happens. You know, when, we're, when I'm working with marriage relationships that are really in crisis, one of the things I always find, usually find in that relationship is, 
because they're not communicating effectively any longer as a couple. And oftentimes, one of the big difficulties with that is that they're not listening to each other. You know, communication involves listening. And so we have to be willing to listen to one another, okay? Even to somebody who has a different opinion and to see if differently, you know, to see it from the way they see it. doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but we give them honor and respect in listening to them and our presence with them as they share with us their point of view or their opinion. So listening is huge. The last thing I just want to invite us to, if we want to work towards oneness, is to pray. To pray. You know, Jesus was praying for oneness, for unity. Why do we think we shouldn't be praying for that? I mean, I think we should be just like Jesus, praying for that. You know, the world is so divided today, politically, socially, economically, spiritually. Can the church be radically different than the rest of our world? Can we be a place that moves towards oneness and unity and is resistant to the culture that we live in? I think in of ourselves, our own abilities, our own energy, I would say we're not going to be able to accomplish that. But you know what? The Bible says that with God, all things are possible. And so if we seek God in prayer, I believe that God will invite us, encourage us, and help us work toward oneness as we live out being a part of the fellowship of the body of Christ. I don't think it will be easy. But I think the amazing thing that will happen as we move toward a greater oneness in the body of Christ is we will be radically different than the rest of the world. And the world will have to take notice because they'll see how different we are. And they're going to see people who look different, act different, sometimes think differently, loving one another the way that Christ loved us. And that love will be an amazingly, will be amazingly attractive to people who are desperate to know that there's something different than what they're experiencing currently. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. God, we're thankful that in your own being that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed for eternity. And that you've been in community before time even was uh, created. And God, as you see us and you saw our need, our isolation, our failure, our brokenness, our living in our sin, God, that you were willing to sacrifice something great in order to invite us into something better, into inviting us into the way that you created creation to be, that you were willing to send your Son who was willing to give himself, leave heaven, take on our flesh, live among us, even willing to die on the cross for our sins and for our failure, that you, the Father, were willing to give your Son in love for us, The Spirit was willing to be poured out, to be risky, to be the presence of God here on earth. God, you were willing to risk it all for us. God, help us to live into your calling to be unified in the body of Christ, to be one with you in heart, mind, soul, and strength. And for that oneness to be demonstrated by our love for you and our love for each other. And God, we pray that as we walk towards that oneness, that our testimony would be so powerful that people would be drawn toward your community, drawn towards your love, drawn toward this oneness that the church has with you. God, may that be true. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.